Welcome to the Growing Rural Podcast, where we focus on all things rural in South Carolina. We will discuss topics on healthcare, economy, education, and the unique culture that is our rural state. This podcast is supported by the South Carolina Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Please join us for today's topic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Growing Rural Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Bennett. Our guest today is Katie Gall. Katie is the director of the Office for Healthcare Workforce, a division of the South Carolina AHEC. Katie, welcome. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about yourself and where you come from and how you ended up doing healthcare workforce work. Sure. So I am a health workforce researcher, and most people don't know what that is. They don't grow up saying, hey, I want to be a healthcare workforce researcher. Um, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and I thought I wanted to be a physician. So I went to college. I started a pre-med track. And then I hit chemistry and calculus, and I decided that wasn't for me. Um, But at the same time, I took a course in world regional geography because I like the blue questions in Trivial Pursuit. And at that time, I learned about health and medical geography, and I realized that I could combine my interest in healthcare with my interest in geography. So I went on to graduate school and I became a graduate research assistant for the Rural Health Research Program at the Shep Center of Health Services Research at UNC Chapel Hill. As a graduate research assistant or GRA, I basically made maps for 20 hours a week and it was at that time just the best job ever. Um, And then when I finished my degree, I was hired full time to stay at the Shep Center with the North Carolina Health Professions Data System. And there I was able to support and learn from experts in health workforce data research and policy. I took a year to work with the National Governors Association, and there I helped states tackle topics around things like health workforce and cross-sector data sharing, so sharing data between Medicaid and uh, the corrections systems. Um, At that time, I was hired into my current position so the director could retire. Ah, yes, of course. So, (laughs) So tell us about the work that your office does here in South Carolina then. So in a nutshell, we support effective health workforce planning in the state by providing data and other information to policymakers and other stakeholders. My team works with the state to track licensed health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we physicians can understand and nurses and yep, physicians, nurses, dentists, pharmacists, therapists, all sorts of providers. Um, and we do that so we can understand how many of which kinds of these professions we have and what specialties and in what locations across the state. So we can tell the number in um, our rural areas, for example, versus our more urban areas. So um, our bread and butter product is our South Carolina Health Professions Data Book, which we release about every two years. Um, This book provides county and region data on the health professions we track, but it also includes data on the population, health status indicators like infant mortality rate or percent Mm -hmm. of the population with diabetes. Um, We have facility data like general hospital beds and then some socioeconomic data related to to health, um, like the number of uninsured people. 
And then uh, beyond that, we produce reports on specific professions to help people understand that profession more and where they're located and understand more access to care issues around those professions. Right. So who are some of the users of your data and your work? So there are a lot of different kinds of stakeholders. Um, our primary audience, I would say, are the policymakers. Mm -hmm. um, so our hope is that our information helps policymakers understand healthcare workforce issues, and that includes issues around um, higher education. Um, and then uh, rural incentive grants. So how can we attract more providers to rural areas? So policymakers would be one audience. Mm -hmm. um, and then our state government. So folks at DHEC uh, use our information. And then others across the state. So people in higher education, um, deans of nursing programs, for example. Right. Um, we have some interest from media, so they come to us for data to support some of the stories they're working on. And then we help other uh, individual providers and even students mm -hmm. when they have health workforce data needs for their own research projects. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So give us a good example of something that you feel like you were like, ah, oh, somebody used our data and something good came out of it. I, I want a good success <laughs> story. So... Um, so we recently released a report on the diversity of the state's healthcare workforce. Mm -hmm. um, and just a little spoiler alert, our health workforce is not as racially and ethnically diverse as our state's population. Right. And that's pretty common actually across the US. Mm -hmm. But people are using this report to highlight the I guess the diversity of the workforce and try to develop ways to help increase that diversity. And this goes all the way down into the pipeline mm -hmm. in our elementary, middle school and high school programs. So how can we identify and support students early in the pipeline to prepare them for a career right. in healthcare? And encourage them um, to consider it to begin with, right? Right. Right. And to help support that, we need to understand who our providers are in these areas, particularly the rural areas, mm -hmm. um, so we can get these students to go back to where they grew up. Right. Um, and if you don't see a provider that looks like you or has a similar background to you, you don't necessarily understand you can be that kind of provider. Right, right. So it's all so about that role model that exactly, exactly. Um, and that extends to uh, higher education too. Mm -hmm. So how many department chairs um, or deans or professors are from a diverse background? Right. So right. lots of far reaching implications. Yeah, and there's but, a lot of research so, out there about the that that match between a patient and their provider if they, are similar gender, race, ethnicity, age, all those kinds of things that healthcare tends to go better. They can open up and they get better quality of care. And, you know, and frankly, some people are more likely to go if, you know, if there, if there's a match there. So that's, that's vitally important. Exactly. It's, uh, it's called racial concordance and right. it just, it helps foster trust between the patient and the provider and helps improve communication. So, so I mean, you mentioned the pipeline. What do you think, what, what are some other reasons why you think we're not as diverse? What, where are the other barriers there that are preventing that? 
Um, so in the research and review that we did for this publication, we were finding a lot of information about uh, support in the education system going back as early as elementary school. And kids from uh, diverse backgrounds are treated differently than, say, white children. Um, and that has a deep impact on their learning trajectory going forward. Um, and then there are also schools that are simply under-resourced and sometimes just aren't able to provide the type of support that students need. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that there are disparities in uh, testing um, and standardized testing. Mm -hmm. um, Especially and MCAT and those, even just to get into med school, for example. Right. But even before that, right. um, so the standardized test you take in, in high school, and that impacts perhaps your ability to get into college right. before you even think about right, the MCATs. Right. So, um, many, so many gateways to get through to get to success, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, and then once you take the MCAT, you still have to make it past the admissions committee at mm -hmm. medical schools. And many admissions committee use the MCAT scores as a filter mm -hmm. um, to separate the, you know, the higher test scores from the lower. So, and if students aren't necessarily testing very well, they may be a perfect candidate for med school in every other way. Just except for that test score, right? Except for the test score. Right. So, you know, when people think about healthcare workforce, I think they think of physicians, uh, they might think of nurses, um, but, you know, reading, especially your diversity report, there were a lot of, I don't know what we call them, ancillary support or other healthcare workers that uh, had larger gaps, I would say, and still have huge needs and provide vital services, you know, respiratory care, social work, occupational therapy, pharmacy, pharmacy techs. What, you know, why do you, what do you think is going on there? I'm not really sure. Right. Um, it might be an effect of students not knowing what these professions are. Mm -hmm. So a lack of exposure to health careers in general. Right. Um, people tend to know, as you said, physicians, nurses, dentists, and they can see them so they can be them, right? right? But if they don't know what a respiratory care practitioner is, a respiratory therapist, or a social worker, um, they don't know that that's something they can go into. And by the time they learn about it, maybe it's, you know, past the time where they would normally be applying to colleges or graduate schools. So what else can we do to, I guess, loosen up these pipelines? How do we, how do we turn on the spigot, so to speak, and give everybody a better opportunity? I think it's just finding ways to continue to support our students and expose them to health careers mm -hmm. and just the supports they need to learn good study habits. Um, understand how to navigate college admissions processes and right. financial aid processes. I know that there are several programs in South Carolina that help students with that. Um, we have a few programs at South Carolina AHEC that support our um, health careers programs. So our regional AHEC support high school students. They expose them to job shadowing opportunities and help them in other ways. Um, and the technical schools have some programs to expose students to health careers. So I think it's continuing 
to implement programs like that to mm -hmm. support these students as they grow up into our potential future health workforce. And then there are some national movements. Um, back in, I think, February, there was a documentary called Black Men in White Coats mm -hmm. that was released. And this is a national movement led by Black physicians. Mm -hmm. And it's really pretty incredible. And so that's another movement that helps expose kids to these careers and helps them see that they, yes, they can be a physician. Right, right. And I would think one of the problems with pipelines is that it just takes a long time to see if it works, right? You could start something in elementary school, but you're looking at a 20 year window to see what happens, right? It does. And that is really pretty hard to track. Right. So some states have these well-developed longitudinal education data systems that track students from kindergarten or even before kindergarten um, out through high school on into higher education in the state. And then some states have a system that tracks them into the workforce. Uh, Kentucky is one example. They're kind of the, the gold standard for this type of data system. Hmm. So, um, but with data systems like that, you get into a lot of privacy issues mm -hmm. and you know, it's just, it's, it's hard to do. There's trade-offs everywhere. Right. Right. Do you think, you know, you mentioned the, the, uh, the black man, white coat, um, initiative, you know, are there other opportunities with media, social media to help encourage, facilitate, educate, get more folks into these professions? Sure. I, I think there are all sorts of opportunities out there. I think it just takes people recognizing that there is a need, mm -hmm. understanding how to communicate with students, and then ha understanding ways to support them. So it's more than just having an idea. Right. You have to get the idea out there, but then find ways to implement it. And in that respect, I think it really takes a village mm -hmm. approach to do this. Yeah, all hands on deck. Kinda. Exactly. So we're recording this. It is what? I don't even know what month it is. It's May 21, 2021. Uh, we've, we're emerging from the COVID pandemic. We feel like we're in good shape, vaccination rates, all that kind of good stuff. Um, we're not really sure what happened to the healthcare workforce this past year. We, we hear a lot of anecdotal evidence. We can talk about that in a minute, but you know, I'm curious before COVID hit, you know, what did you see as kind of our top healthcare workforce issues in this state? What were the, what were the big ones that you were seeing before this? Prior to COVID, I was hearing, uh, ongoing issues about the nursing workforce. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the nursing workforce goes through periods of shortage and then it, it peaks and goes into a surplus and it goes back into shortage. So it's the cycle that mm. just continues on and on. Um, so we had been hearing even before COVID that hospitals needed more nurses. Mm. So that was one issue. Um, we have also been tracking our rural primary care workforce. So that includes physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. And what we were seeing was that there have been tremendous increases in the number of primary care NPs, nurse practitioners, right. across the state. And that included a 98% increase in our state's non-metropolitan counties. Yeah, that's huge. But at the same time, 
Yeah, but and that's kind of a national trend as well. Right. But at the same time, when we look at physicians, sure, there's an across-the-board increase in uh, physicians in our state, but there was an 8% decrease mm-hmm. in the number of primary care physicians in our non-metropolitan counties. So right. what we're seeing is that we're having more NPs come into our rural counties and the physicians are declining, right. whether that's due to retirement or they're moving elsewhere to practice we haven't looked into yet. So it's possible of a substitution effect. We don't want to right. assign causality necessarily, but there seems to be something going on there. Exactly. And just identifying that something is going on helps us understand who's out there treating our rural population. Right. And what needs might be emerging from that. Exactly. Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, with COVID, nurses were on the front lines in so many ways. You know, if there was a growing consensus of shortage before, that's bound to have been exacerbated over this past year, don't you think? Yes. And so let me back up a second and talk about the notion of shortage. So shortage is a very complex issue. And when people say we have a shortage of physicians or we have a shortage of nurses, generally what it translates into is a maldistribution. So we might have enough physicians in Columbia or Charleston where we've got our a couple med schools but we need more physicians in our rural counties in calhoun county or orangeburg or other areas and i think the same is true for nurses and we know that our hospitals say they need more nurses that they have a hard time filling their vacancies but you know what's what's going on in the hospitals that they keep needing those nurses Mm -hmm. is it problems with turnover Um, Is it something the hospital can look at their hiring and onboarding culture and their Mm -hmm. retention strategies? Mm -hmm. Is it truly that, you know, their nurses are retiring and they can't find new nurses to fill the slots? So that's another area that we want to look into more. Um, But when we think of shortage, we try to communicate it more as a maldistribution and educate people on what the difference is. So, yeah, I think the growing consensus is that we're training enough physicians, but we're not, they're not choosing to go into primary care and then they're not choosing to go to these higher need, lower density areas. So they're aggregating in specialties and in urban areas where that higher income is. Right, right. And, you know, another facet of that is even if we increase enrollment in the schools across our state, it doesn't mean they're going to stay in the state to practice. Physicians still have to do a residency after they finish medical school and Mm -hmm. residency is a national market. So they can choose to go wherever and they have to get accepted into those programs. So there's some even deeper dynamics there. Yeah. And I know that with AHEC, you all do several things to try to retain workforce, uh, incentivize folks to work in rural areas, those kinds of things, right? Right. So South Carolina AHEC supports the state's family medicine residency programs and provides, I think, some professional development for faculty and we support uh, residents in those programs too. Mm-hmm. We also administer the state's uh, rural retention 
program. It's the the Rural Physician Incentive Program, mm-hmm. uh, which is also open to physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and certified nurse midwives. Yeah, um, and then there's also a program to support dentists and dental faculty right. uh, with incentive grants. And those grants don't have to be used to pay back loans. They're just so general grants. To- right. Right. And so maybe they can use those, uh, that funding to put a down payment on a house, right. which may keep them in the community longer than just paying off a loan. Right. Establish some roots. and right. right. Kind of circling back to the shortage question and the maldistribution discussion. I know nationally there's a, I don't know if it's a philosophical debate on how do you actually measure what you need, right? You know, what is a... You know, we talk about physician to population ratios, for example. Um, and I know you use those in your work. We use them. Everybody uses them. But how do we know, okay, you're lower, but does that mean that you have a higher need? Or is it just you have a lower demand? You know, how do we how do we balance that? How do we get to the more fine-tuning of figuring out what a community actually needs and trying to meet that need? Right. That's a really hard question and there are so many experts across the country that have ideas but they have a hard time nailing down the one answer because there are a lot of different ways to approach it so we know that hospitals do community needs assessments Mm -hmm. Um, so they should have an understanding of what healthcare needs their community has, and then they can build their workforce and their services around that. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of at the local level. At the state level, we can understand where, say, our physicians are working and in which specialties. We can look at physician to population ratios or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we know that for every one physician there is, maybe there are 4,500 people, mm-hmm. or maybe there are 10,000 people if there's right. one physician serving one county, right. right? Which is possible and likely. It is possible and likely. Right. Um, so we can look at that and we have a general sense of what our distribution is, but unless we know how many hours that physician is working, mm-hmm. how many patients they can see, mm-hmm. how many patients they have that have complex chronic issues mm-hmm. that need more attention versus, you know, an annual well child checkup. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that's the information that becomes hard to track. And there are some national sample surveys out there that help us understand healthcare utilization. Mm-hmm. But again, that's only the people that are going out to use healthcare services. And you have the folks sitting at home that can't go to a provider because they're scared, they're not interested, they can't afford it, they don't have insurance, they don't have transportation. Right, there's a multitude of barriers to even get to that point. Right, and then on top of that, there are are different ways to configure the workforce. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking physicians, maybe you need endocrinology services, but you don't have the resources to hire an endocrinologist. So perhaps you hire a general internist who can do some endocrinology, and then you find someone to refer out for the specialty care. Right. So, so there are different ways to configure the workforce, and that also uh, makes it trying to gauge supply and demand 
little harder. Right. And, you know, and we're, you know, diversifying the workforce, but also diversifying the type of workforce. You know, you talk right. mentioning certified nurse midwives, for example, are a great extension of obstetrics and maternity care. You know, nurse practitioners, uh, community health workers, there's a whole sort of really great health professionals going out there, but then that makes the picture even more complex. You know, 60 right. years ago, it was a physician and a nurse, basically, right? And they did everything for a community. Right. And now you have physician practices hiring medical assistants mm -hmm. uh, right off the street with on-the-job training. Mm -hmm. And then instead of hiring the RNs, which are going to be more expensive, maybe they have one RN in the practice that can help manage some of their complex patients and do mm -hmm. more care coordination, while the medical assistant is the one taking the history and the vitals. Right. So. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. You know, this past year, we've also learned um, about telehealth. I think those of us in the field knew about telehealth, but it feels like the rest of the country finally woke up to it this past year. Um, realized, okay, this actually works. This is great uh, for some things. Um, you know, what are your impressions as the, the statewide expert on healthcare workforce? I'm putting you on the spot, but how do you think that's uh -huh. going to shape our workforce needs going forward? Because I could see medical assistants, um, gosh, telehealth navigators, you know, new new professions branching up out of this to meet that need and the demand of this new modality. How do you think that's gonna shape out? Right, so, so telehealth gets a little more complex because not all of our areas have broadband access, right. suffi sufficient internet connections to support the telehealth video visits. Right. Um, so, you know, first, about two episodes ago, we talked to Kathy Schwarting and Palmetto Care Connections about that. So give it, exactly. give it a listen. She'll tell you all about it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so that's one barrier. And then another issue is reimbursement so how mm -hmm. do you get paid to provide a telehealth visit right. and many states uh, reimbursement policies follow medicare so mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how medicare payment policies change after covid right. um, a lot of the policies changed during covid mm -hmm. um, so that we could provide these visits without people having to come in i think a lot of those are going to stick around yeah that's what it seems to be that momentum is carrying yeah. forward with this administration right and then as far as how that impacts workforce as long as the money's there then we can train people to do more telehealth and understand how to communicate with patients through the computer right, or right. through the phone right. and and monitor those folks. Because that's, so. that's a different interaction. We've all, you know, Zoom fatigue is now a lexicon added to our vocabulary. You know, how do you manage a good patient visit via Zoom? It's a very different encounter than face-to-face. -face. So it takes a different skill set, different training. It's a whole different ball of wax, right? Right. And beyond that, just helping people on the other end of the camera understand how to get through technical difficulties. Hey, right. my audio doesn't work. Right. Well, do this first and then this. Right. So it's a little more than just healthcare too. You yeah. a little tech support in there too. Yeah, and that and that's not insignificant. And being able to do it via phone, you know, part of talking about regulations that were loosened up, you know, allowing FaceTime for a billable encounter was allowed during COVID for a lot of right. things. Um, whether that continues or not, or should continue is open for debate, I think. But 
you know, that opened the door for a lot of people to access it that otherwise wouldn't have. Um, Right. And then I guess one more piece for telehealth is uh, interstate practice. Mm -hmm. So if I am in South Carolina, but I want to talk to a provider in Georgia, can that provider treat me if they're not licensed in South Carolina? Right. So that's another regulatory implication here. And that also has implications on how we are able to count the health workforce in our state. So our data would not count that provider in Georgia, even though they're providing services to someone in South Carolina. Right, because they don't, they're not licensed here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, for those of you that don't know, that's every state, each state does their own licensure for their workforce. It's not, there's not a national license for them. Right. There are interstate compacts. So uh, the, the best known one is the nurse licensure compact, where if you are licensed in a state that participates in the compact, you can practice in any other compact state without becoming licensed in that state. Um, and now there's a medical compact where it's it's not that you can just go and practice in a participating state. Uh, I think it's an expedited application process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're still licensed in that originating state. and But other states will look at that and say, okay, we'll accept that with right. a brief form or some other sort of regulatory. But it, it still originates in that one state, which they, they're responsible and then they can retract it at any point, too. Theoretically, at least. Um, You know, kind of circling back to COVID and some of the things we talked about, I I think you mentioned this as well, but burnout has been an ongoing issue in the healthcare workforce. Um, You know, and it's just this concept of, you know, working long hours, hard hours. Healthcare can be stressful, you know, if you're dealing with people in pain and death and dying and just different issues. It's not always a a great outcome when you're seeing patients and you know what do we do to help support our workforce and what are, what do you guys have on your docket that help with burnout help with training education resources those kinds of things right this is a topic that is getting so much attention now and and it's actually garnered a lot of attention just over the past several years too so this isn't new it's that covid has exacerbated right. existing conditions um i think through AHEC we can offer trainings to support students and practicing health professionals um, with strategies to deal with stress, mm-hmm. uh, mindfulness, you know, other strategies so that they can mitigate the effects of potential burnout um, and help uh, foster more resiliency with right. the healthcare workers. Right. Um, I know that this is something that hospitals and other large employers are looking at. They want to find ways to support their healthcare workers too. Mm-hmm. Uh, through COVID, I anecdotally, um, I have heard that a lot of the stress and the burnout has come not only to the long hours and everything that they've had to deal with in terms of sickness and death, but also the lack of available uh, PPE. 
So right. having enough masks and gowns and not having to reuse all these. So right. are there ways that we can try to, uh, I guess, compile more PPE for right. the workers those, to use? Those resources that alleviate the stress, right? Exactly. And right. I know there are folks out there looking at that. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it, it's a shame that we're, we have to be so reactionary on so many of these things. But next go around, if there is a next go around, we'll be better prepared, I hope, for that. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm curious too, and you know, you may not have a good answer to this, but you know, one, you know, talking about anecdotes coming out of COVID. Um, but I've heard a lot of practices and hospitals struggling to maintain their front desk staff, their administrative staff, doing check-ins, doing checkouts, uh, even janitorial staff, you know, there's lack of PPE, the stress of the virus, lack of childcare, um, people just stepping away from those jobs about a necessity or whatever need there was, and practices are struggling with that. Um, I don't know if that's on your radar as a healthcare workforce need or nationally if that's on the radar of including front desk staff, billing staff, you know, registration staff as part of our healthcare workforce to monitor and track as well. Right. So the issue that we would have in trying to track those folks is that they're not licensed. Right. So the professions we track, we get good data on 100% of that workforce because we can collect data through licensure. Right. So we can't necessarily tell the numbers of front desk staff or custodial staff or medical assistants or other folks like that. Mm -hmm. The places like the South Carolina Department of Employment and Workforce should have a lot of that information um, through employment and unemployment records. Right. So that might be one thing that we could look at, one data source. Right. And then nationally, it would be the Bureau of Labor Statistics or the American Community Survey. Right. Um, but it depends when the data are collected and reported. It's hard for us to quantify how many front desk staff, for example, that we've lost in the last year. Right. Um, so, but we do know uh, through some work that was being led by the Chef Center for Health Services Research mm -hmm. and which South Carolina AHEC partnered on, we know that providers in our rural areas really are struggling. Um, mm -hmm. And I haven't seen the examples personally but it sounds like they're just heart-wrenching yeah. situations. And some right. of these practices haven't been able to sustain and stay open. You know, we've talked a good bit about some of the challenges, and especially in rural areas, about lack of providers, closures, things like that. Um, but I always like to ask people, you know, what are, what are the good things in rural? What have you seen that you really love about rural, especially in the state? Um, I guess first and foremost, just the people and the mm -hmm. communities. Our our rural communities are so rich in culture and history, and they're kind. And you know, the people are just so good. Whether it's the residents being treated or the people providing the care, and I think that in our state we have so many good supports for our rural areas. We have AHEC, we have the South Carolina Office of Rural Health, we have your Center for Rural and Primary Healthcare. Mm -hmm. We have all sorts of things across the state to help support our folks there. So mm -hmm. 
uh, I feel in many ways we're all rowing in the same direction. And at the state level, that is just quite amazing to see. Yeah, see that investment. It's a it's a good sign. Right. Long overdue. Right. And you know, I'm I'm not looking for a technical answer to this. You and I could talk technical answers to this all we want, but I'm I'm curious how you define rural. If somebody didn't really know what rural South Carolina was, how would you define it without using words like RUCA or census tract? Oh gosh, <laughs> there are a gazillion definitions of rural, um, and you're right. I would probably defer to a or default to a technical answer right. um, because some definitions are used to base uh, funding decisions on, right, right. Um, especially at the federal level. So, but I think when I think about rural, I think about where I grew up. I grew up mm-hmm. about 25 minutes outside of a big university town, but it still felt rural. You mm-hmm. knew everyone in town, they knew all about you. Mm-hmm. There was one stoplight, if any, um, and you know, you, you just, you know, everyone knows everyone and they pull together. So mm. I think really it comes down to maybe a defined sense of community hmm. um, and having the ability to rally around and support everyone. Not that people can't do that in urban areas too, but right. rural seems a little more self-contained. Right, right. No, that's that's a good definition there. I like that one. Um, so anything that you want people to look out for from your office, anything coming out soon or any interesting data you got coming out soon? Yeah, we've got some good stuff going on. Um, Earlier, I mentioned that we produce a data book about every two years. Mm -hmm. Our newest data book, we're hoping to have ready by the end of June, maybe early July. Um, And that will contain data from 2018 and 2019 which is the most current data we have available uh, through the state. So uh, we're very excited about that. We'll pop it up on our website and send it out through Twitter. So if anyone has questions, let us know. Um, And then we're also working on a couple different projects. We are working on a report to describe the advanced practice registered nursing workforce, which includes nurse practitioners and certified nurse midwives. We have some uh, more reports up our sleeve to look at diversity. So we did a report on statewide diversity. Now we want to compare racial and ethnic diversity between rural and urban Mm -hmm. areas and see if there are differences there. And then building on that Black Men and White Coats documentary, we hope to do a short brief on uh, black male physicians Mm -hmm. in the state. Good. So, so lots, lots of good, fun ideas. Yeah, lots of good stuff going on. I will put lots of links in our show notes of this episode for your office and where they can find you uh, on Twitter and on uh, other social media platforms. And hopefully we'll put the link on there for new reports as they come out as well. Great. So thank you for joining me. This has been a really good, interesting conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, just stay tuned for more episodes coming out as well. And if you've liked what you've heard, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating. And if you have any ideas for guests you'd like to hear on our program, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everybody. And that's all for today. 
Thanks for listening to the Growing Rural Podcast. If you found the content valuable, please leave a rating on iTunes or Spotify so others can find us. For more information, please visit our website at sc.edu forward slash rural healthcare or follow us on Twitter at sc underscore crph. This was recorded at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Columbia. It is edited and produced by Sean Riffle. Y'all take care.